You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Lynn Cheney has seen presidential leadership up close, including eight years spent as Second Lady of the United States. Cheney joined the Washington Post to discuss her new book, The Virginia Dynasty, which explores the leadership of four of the nation's first five presidents. Let's listen. Good afternoon. And welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter at the Washington Post. Our guest today is the former second lady of the United States, Dr. Lynn Cheney. Dr. Cheney is a historian and a best-selling author of 12 books, including a biography of President James Madison. She joins us today, though, to discuss her latest book entitled The Virginia Dynasty. Four Presidents and the Creation of the American Nation. It highlights the leadership of four of the nation's first five presidents. Dr. Cheney, welcome to Washington Post Live. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. I'm glad we're both broadcasting this afternoon from undisclosed locations, both of us in Virginia, in that (laughs) great state. And it is a special state in American history, and your book takes us into that because you look at President Washington, just down the road from me here, uh, his home in Mount Vernon, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. And you write about how they all grew up within 60 miles of each other. And one thing that stood out to me in your book was that because they grew up in the same region around the same time, they had some of the same teachers who came from the same area, Scotland, teachers who appreciated the Scottish Enlightenment. How important is it when you're trying to understand America to understand that our founding fathers were taught by teachers who embraced the Scottish Enlightenment and maybe even were from Scotland? Well, I think it's an important concept because it uh, helps understand the enthusiastic intellectual times in which they lived. Uh, The Enlightenment and the Scottish Enlightenment in particular uh, pointed out that using reason, Uh, mankind could create better and better societies, societies which could contribute to human happiness. So knowing that they had those ideas um, in their hearts and in their souls, and that uh, tracing back the lineage to the Scottish Enlightenment and all those wonderful professors from Edinburgh who decided to come to, uh, to Virginia to teach, uh, understanding all of that, I think, adds depth to uh, to our understanding of them. Why did some of those teachers from the University of Edinburgh come to Virginia to teach the children of the elite in Virginia? It seems like such a happenstance development, perhaps, but so critical to the idea of America and the, the ideas that founded the country. Well, I think as often happens with professors, the uh, absence of jobs in one place uh, encouraged them to to seek employment in another. And Virginia had long emphasized uh, very fine education for the sons of of the elite. And uh, so that's uh, where the uh, uh, teachers from Edinburgh uh, fit in. They founded schools, they founded academies that became Um, very important um, to the fathers, mothers of these men as as they uh, thought about how they should be educated. Who's considered the smartest Virginian of that group who really uh, 
embrace the ideas, the, the teachings of the time? Well, Madison was the most uh, probing scholar. He was uh, uh, the best studied. He understood uh, in a deep way uh, the history that uh, he thought his uh, fellow Virginians should look to in order to build a better society. He was worried about constitutions. He thought about them from the time he was in college. Um, he wrote about, uh, he wrote to a friend, can you tell me about the constitution of your state? And then as uh, the years progressed, the revolution happened and there was a new nation to found, he began to research even more deeply so that uh, he knew the history of constitutions and was the perfect person to lead the Constitutional Convention. Not formally, Washington led it formally, but Madison was uh, the intellectual leader. I had until your book, I'd never really thought about the regional importance of how people learned and how our founding fathers developed their ideas. Beyond Virginia and this Virginia school of thought informed by the Scottish Enlightenment, were there any other regions that really informed the founding of the country? What made Virginia different than, say, New England at the time or Philadelphia? Well, there were certainly fine schools in New England, uh, and John, Ad John Adams uh, profited from them. Um, Virginia, and the reason I chose to write this book, uh, was unique in having these men so close together. And I think that uh, their proximity influenced them. Uh, they lifted each other up. Uh, they helped one another when uh, things went bad. And they quarreled. I love this part because people don't know it. And it's always fun to tell people that, uh, you know, life then was uh, not a bowl of cherries. There were great conflicts going on. And I think those conflicts, those arguments, those quarrels um, made, them, made them better statesmen. They sharpened their wits on those quarrels, on those disputes. And uh, that uh, was one of the ways in which they uh, changed one another's lives. And you look at the election of 1800, and to your point just now about how rough and tumble things were then, a lot of people today say, oh, wow, this feels this election feels like it's the most important ever. But it was dark at times back in 1800. They fought. It was politically charged, acrimony. Are there any lessons from 1800 or other elections at the time to help us understand today's political divide? Well, you know, it's hard to uh, to take a direct lesson from the past. But I do think one bit of instruction comes from the fact that uh, we made it through. The election of 1800, as you mentioned, ended up uh, pitting Aaron Burr against Thomas Jefferson. And it became so bitter after it was thrown into the House of Representatives that there was talk of uh, people arming in Pennsylvania and in Maryland. It was uh, very, very contentious and, and threatening to... Uh, to national unity. So I think knowing that happened and somehow we managed, we came through, is a theme that we can hold on to. You mentioned how they had their quarrels, Dr. Cheney, particularly George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. I didn't understand the depth of, of their break until I read your book. It seems like they didn't even speak for years. Well, um, I'm not sure that uh, 
they did speak. Um, the break occurred over uh, founding of uh, the funding, the founding, the approval of the Jay Treaty, um, and both Jefferson and Madison uh, were furious uh, at the way this had happened. Madison had been Washington's right-hand man as he was president. Uh, Madison was in the House, but he wrote Washington's inaugural address. He wrote uh, the House's reply to the inaugural address, the president's reply to the Senate for, uh, for their um, address to him. And uh, he, he was right there. But as the Jay Treaty was uh, ratified, he and Washington uh, got into a quarrel about uh, the right of the uh, House of Representatives to uh, participate in treaty making. And that ended it. They seldom uh, were in contact uh, after that. Washington once wrote to Madison after that and said, is it okay if I move the Congress to another location? And Madison said, no. And Washington didn't. Now, as far as Jefferson is concerned, I think the fact that he was uh, Washington's Secretary of State at the same time that he was uh, plotting about creating a political party may have irritated Washington no small amount. But the feeling was mutual. Jefferson, uh, de deliberately, I think most scholars agree, did not attend Washington's funeral. And uh, the, the bitterness was so great that when Jefferson visited Martha Washington after uh, the general's death, she told Abigail Adams that it was one of the worst days of her life, that the only worst one was when her husband had died. So the animosities were not on the surface. They ran, uh, they ran very deep. So these Virginians, as we've discussed, were advocates of liberty, they learned about the Scottish Enlightenment, yet they also held people in slavery. So who among them, if any of them, acknowledged the contradictions at the center of their own lives? Well, they all did. Um, Jefferson, perhaps most. Um, some of the uh, words he used are uh, engraved inside the uh, Jefferson Memorial. He called it a sin against God, a uh, stain on Virginia. They all uh, hated slavery. Madison, in, in his uh, younger days, tried to find a way to live without slavery. Um, he tried a little land speculation with Monroe, but it didn't work. They couldn't support themselves. And in the end, they all realized that they couldn't achieve the total emancipation that justice required. So that was on the one hand, they lived in contradiction because on the other hand, they were in a place and time where a new nation was to be created and they had within them uh, studied and uh, uh, internalized this, the enlightenment ideas of freedom, justice, and equality. So they created a new nation uh, upon which uh, uh, those ideals um, were uh, crucial. They were the foundation for the for the new nation. So yes, they lived in contradiction. They held slaves, but they also uh, built a nation that had uh, uh, noble ideas and ideals at its base. 
one thing that struck me reading the book is how important geography in, in someone's region is to informing how they think, what they've learned, who their teachers were. And I wondered, they all grew up in Virginia within 60 miles of each other. But as just a, an observer, a reader of history, I did wonder, can you imagine if they grew up within 60 miles of New York City instead? And to the slavery point, I wonder if Virginia, as much as it blessed them in a way with Scottish Enlightenment thinking, it almost mm -hmm. cursed them because they, they come out of this culture that, in, that has slavery at the center of the economy. And that's, that's a very good way to put it. Um, Virginia was a, a double-edged sword uh, for all of them. Uh, it's important, I think, that we stress the ideals in which they fully believed, though they could not live fully up to them, that we stress those ideals. Because I think sometimes, today especially, that we overlook that part and we say, ah, they were slaveholders. Um, the District of Columbia, as you probably know, the mayor recently had a commission uh, to decide what to do with monuments that uh, uh, honored slaveholders. And therefore, um, the suggestion was, well, we either need to have big descriptions of what, what was wrong with these men, or we need to move the monuments. Don't give them such a central place in the capital city. Well, this, this caused, needless to say, and I'm glad to report, great consternation. But it shows this emphasis, as does the tearing down of the statues, on uh, demeaning slaveholders, which should be demeaned, but of not understanding the complexities of human life and uh, the complexities of these men. You are a former chair of the National Endowment of the Humanities, and to talk about the complexities, where do you draw the line, Dr. Cheney, if you don't want to bring down the statues of the founding fathers who held slaves, what about Confederate leaders? Where, where should the line be drawn in your own personal opinion? Well, I, I think, first of all, it all must happen in an orderly way. Uh, we can't just uh, wake up uh, one morning or head out one evening with the idea that we're going to tear down statues. Uh, it does need to happen in an orderly way. I personally don't uh, uh, mourn the uh, statues of Confederate um, officers, generals, soldiers, whatever. I don't. I don't lament uh, their being moved. Um, these men were, well, to put it bluntly, they were traitors to the country and to the Constitution. And while we should know about them, there's no reason to celebrate them in our national life by having them uh, decorate our landscape. Beyond that, though, I, it's very hard for me to understand. Some of the statues that have been torn down were not uh, of slaveholders. Poor Unipero Serra, who was a, uh, a friar and who established uh, posts along the coast of California and, and helped the uh, Native American population, his statues have come down. I, I've noticed there has been desecration of the Virgin Mary a statue here in Washington. So, you know, it's, it's gotten completely out of hand. What is your view of the New York Times' 1619 project on slavery in American history? Should it be taught and used in American schools? I haven't seen the curriculum and, uh, you know, so maybe they cleaned it up a little before uh, they, uh, they designed this program for teaching. But I was just struck from the very beginning 
1619 project opens with words very similar to these. From the beginning, our country's ideals were lies. Now, no, you know, at the beginning, our country's ideals were freedom and justice and equality. Those weren't lies. They were ideals, and we may not have lived up to them. We haven't lived up fully to them yet. But those are so important um, to remember. And the 1619 Project uh, dismisses them out of hand in its first paragraph. According to the Washington Post, our own reporting at the paper last month, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of that project, said she never intended to suggest, quote, every single colonist was driven to preserve slavery. Uh, it also should be noted the Times ran a clarification in March, adding that slavery was a motivator for, quote, some of the colonists. Any uh, response to that? Well, there was a, a scholarly outcry, uh, five very respected scholars. It could have been more, but I believe it was five, including Gordon Wood, uh, whom I think of as the dean of historians these days, uh, particularly objected to the idea expressed in the 1619 Project that uh, slavery was the cause of the revolution. And finally, um, after having been uh, beaten about the ears, um, the uh, uh, 1619 Project fixed that. So it no longer declares slavery to be the cause of the American Revolution. There has been scholarly dissent, and that's a very good thing. One other point about your book, it's not just about the Scottish Enlightenment, it's also about religion, and religion factors into uh, this discussion of Virginia. How did these Virginians uh, overlap and perhaps differentiate on faith, both publicly and privately, as they founded this, this nation? Well, I, I think, first of all, you have to uh, uh, follow the thread that goes through the book about freedom of religion. Madison, a truly amazing man, I have to say, at a very young age, um, made an objection when the Constitution of Virginia was being written. It, it said that all religions shall be tolerated. And to Madison, that meant that there was some uh, state entity out there that could approve or disapprove uh, of religion, perhaps not act upon their disapproval because all men would be tolerated. But in his belief, and he changed the, uh, uh, the statute so that um, this, this became the message, all men should have freedom to worship as they see fit. Such an important concept. One, one uh, scholar whom uh, I've admired writes that it was a hinge of history when that uh, concept broke through. It's not just that everybody should be tolerated in their religion, Everybody should be free. So that was a theme that Madison and Jefferson really um, picked up all of their lives. Jefferson um, talked about it as intellectual freedom, too, that uh, there's no need for anybody to dictate to anyone else how they should believe. Um, and uh, he wrote eloquently about that. Madison um, helped Jefferson uh, get the, the uh, statute of religious freedom passed, which again affirmed our individual rights to believe as we wish, think as we wish. And uh, he, he regarded that as a high achievement. 
to have, I think as he put it this way, to have freed the human mind forever. What a lovely thought. And it was not just lovely, it was transformational. So that's, that's how I uh, talk about religion in uh, the Virginia dynasty. And your book connects to today. There, are all, there have always been tensions since the start in America between the state and individual freedom and, and liberty and where the line should be drawn, if ever. And that brings me to the pandemic. You and Vice President Cheney have been in Virginia uh, during this, this tough period for our whole country. Your daughter, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, a member of Republican leadership, tweeted in June, quote, Dick Cheney says, wear a mask. Do you believe President Trump should take his advice a little bit more? Well, you know, I do notice that citizens are taking this thing in hand themselves. Uh, in my little short drive today, I didn't see anybody without a mask. Um, people are making up uh, their minds that mask wearing is good, um, whatever may be happening in the president's rallies. So, you know, I think the people do take this in hand. I do think we mislead them some when we say masks don't matter because they do matter. Um, so yes, there's there have always been fights about what to do about pandemics. The uh, particular fight in the uh, 18th century, 19th century was about smallpox and a method of inoculation was uh, discovered. So you could get inoculated with a light case of smallpox and thereby avoid getting a very severe case at one point, the city fathers of Boston decided that there was something evil about inoculation and that uh, no one should have it. It was interfering with the will of God. Moreover, it might set forth a smallpox uh, emergency with, with everyone catching it. A few years later, smallpox was so, um, so ravaging Boston and New England that the city fathers in Boston decided, okay, we are going to have, I don't know, I've called it an inoculation holiday. Everyone can come into Boston if they get there before July 12th and be inoculated. This is in 1776. Abigail mm -hmm. Adams was one of those who took advantage of this and she took her, her whole family uh, to be inoculated. It was uh, a good thing to do. You know, I guess what they achieved was something like herd immunity, but not for long. Uh, a few years later, they were again lamenting, lamenting that smallpox was uh, sweeping the city. So they tried uh, resolutions to this catastrophe, not dissimilar to some we're discussing today. You've been at the center of the conservative movement in America for decades. Do you still consider yourself a conservative and a Republican? Yes. Are you supporting President Trump's reelection? Well, I, I'm not here to uh, be a pundit, but I will tell you that I've been reading um, a lot of the pundits that you know, and what had seemed um, to be a certain Biden victory now uh, seems very much uh, that the election seems to have closed. And uh, I, I sense those people in the media and, and probably in my circle of friends who might have been counting on a Biden victory uh, are no longer so sure. Um, however much the president's rallies set uh, a message that many of us don't like about uh, 
not wearing masks and, and going to large gatherings. I think they are very effective. And people watching them on television, I don't think, are into the COVID mode of thinking. They're just into this uh, energetic uh, way of thinking about politics. And the president seems strong. And, you know, Joe Biden just hasn't. So I don't mean to be a pundit. Those are just my well, that those are fair observations, Dr. Cheney. But is it fair to say that personally, you and Vice President Cheney will keep your vote private this time around? Well, I do think that uh, you know votes are supposed to be private. So if that's what you would prefer, then you certainly have a right to do it. So no, no, uh, yes or no on President Trump and whether you back him for re-election. Well, no, yes or no uh, on my vote. Fair enough. I respect that, but needed to press a little bit as a reporter there. Uh, where do you think this Republican Party goes? I, I remember your your time as a, an activist and a conservative and then National Endowment. Does the Republican Party move back toward the Reagan era that you shaped in the Bush-Cheney era, or do you think it moves more toward nationalism and populism, not based on your own experience, but also as a historian? You know, I think we can't overlook the uh, election of 2016, which confounded uh, many, many people, myself included. I was very surprised at the outcome. But what uh, what the president saw, and he was not president yet, of course, was this feeling by so many Americans in the uh, middle, lower class, that they were left out, that no one cared for their concerns that no one paid any attention to them, that the world got ruled from uh, the East and West Coast. And I think that idea will have to be important to the Republican Party uh, moving forward, whether the president wins or not. Uh, that idea is something that will, that will stay with us. I guess that sounds a little populist, I'm not sure. It's just concern, it's just compassion for people who you know, people on the East and West Coast, they refer to where these people live as flyover land. Well, you know, I, I guess I'm in flyover land being from Wyoming, and uh, no one there appreciates the federal government uh, uh, mandating whether or not they can have a water hole for their cows or whether or not they can uh, uh, pick up uh, wood, um, not, not to use, but just to get out of the way on uh, land controlled by the federal government. The, these are not things that are appreciated, and I think republics have never appreciated them, but the president has uh, underscored that. One final thing, Dr. Cheney, history, as your book shows, uh, historians centuries from now will always be weighing in and with different perspectives and new looks at what's happened before. You yourself are a figure in history, a former second lady of the United States. We've all had a lot of time to watch movies during this pandemic. Have you ever any assessment of Amy Adams' portrayal of you in Vice? Well, I thought Vice was uh, very cartoonish. It wasn't, uh, it, it, maybe it tried to make a political statement, but you couldn't understand it because everything was so confused. And I didn't like the movie, but I, I have said that uh, being played by Amy Adams wasn't half bad. So there is that. And you have to laugh about things like this that happen to you when you're a public figure. 
Also, when I heard that Christian Bale was going to play Dick, I thought, oh, wow. Now, he didn't play Dick as handsome as Dick really is. But, uh, you know, it's just an amusing thing to find yourself um, lampooned on the screen. We all can't have Amy Adams and uh, Christian Bale play us in film. So you have that, Dr. Cheney, and this new book. Thanks for joining us this afternoon for a conversation about it. And a little politics, because uh, you, have, you have a little political side as well, it's just, even, even as uh, you're a historian and writer. I know you're not a pundit, but you've lived a political life from time to time. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Well, thank Cheney. Thank you for having me. It was a, a good conversation, and I, I appreciate your asking me to do this. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.